Welcome to today's show. Today I have Tim Hendricks here, a general partner at a large venture capital firm. I got to talk to Tim about what it looks like inside a venture capital firm, how his firm decides who to invest in, the future of the market, what investors are looking for, how to invest in venture capital firms themselves, and so much more. I loved having him on the show, and I'm excited for you guys to hear it today. Hey, and welcome to today, guys. Tim, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? Doing great. Excited to be here. Excited to spend some time with you. Tim, I'm excited to have you here. And honestly, I've been looking forward to this call with you all week. And so, Tim, I just got to start off with always my favorite question when bringing on a guest. Just tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to where you are now. Uh, you asked for a little bit. Uh, you'll you'll definitely get a lot out of me. <laughs> I, I love conversation. I love chatting. But uh, my background is pretty diverse. Originally, I'm from Tennessee. Uh, most recently, I spent the last few years of my life in Silicon Valley. I was working operational roles there originally with Tesla uh, and a healthcare technology company. Recently, they uh, they were minted a billion dollar unicorn. So very exciting time there. I also work as a general partner with an international venture capital firm, and I direct and manage my own private investment and management company. So uh, my bachelor's is supply chain management operations, and I have a master's from Harvard University. It's where I focused on finance, investment theory, but probably most importantly, I am the proud recipient of probably the greatest spouse in the world, paired with a couple of the greatest friends, family, mentors, this side of the Mississippi, as we tend to say here in Tennessee. But I did grow up in Middle Tennessee. I am specifically from what we call God's country, Las Casas, Tennessee. Music, sports, those are huge parts of my upbringing. Whenever I was a kid, I used to do a lot of guitar lessons. Uh, majority of my childhood, I loved, loved performing. Uh, you may not know it yet, man, but I am I am a showman. A lot of dramatic ability on this side. Whenever you're whenever you're raised with like a voice like this, where you can just drop it down when you need to, man, it's it's hard not to be a showman. You know, you laugh, but it's true. Uh, it's totally true. But uh, you know, I also grew up playing sports, so you know, talking about an odd balance there between arts and sports. Uh, it was really hard to make those two worlds kind of mesh together because, you know, here I am. And, and well, hold up. You got you got to remember High School Musical. You got Troy Bolton being <laughs> a basketball player in the music and in the musical. So you're like a real life Troy Bolton. You know, ba I don't know if you've read the resume yet, but that's literally the first line on my resume. Uh, so you nailed it. Perfect, man. <laughs> but, dude, it was hard. It was hard being like an angsty teen with like black metal punk band t-shirts, black fingernails, and, uh, you know, hitting, hitting in the cleanup spot for the baseball team. You know, that's a hard life to, that's a hard life to balance. That's a, that's a lot of conflicting, uh, emotions and visuals right there. So, uh, originally I thought music was probably going to be my way that I was going to go to college. I was going to I was going to move on. I was probably going to be a rock star. I grew up just a little bit through high school and I realized, okay, music might not be it. I'll, I'll do sports. Uh, I originally, I walked on to go play at university, spent my first week doing conditioning in the summer and the Tennessee heat was very quick to figure out, no, this is not my passion. This is not what, this is not what was intended for me. 
I was not a fan of sprints, not a fan of how hot it was, how humid it was. So uh, I made the flip immediately. I said, okay, music business. I am definitely a music business major. This is what I'm going to do. But yeah, I, I, I tried that out for all of a year and I realized, no, this is, this is not where I want to be. And that definitely is a, you know, a hard realization because you have two things you grew up with identifying as, you know, I'm, a, I'm an artist. I'm a musician. I'm a, I'm a, a baseball player. And then all of a sudden, both of those things are gone. I was just going to take some time, clear my head, figure it out, take a, you know, what do they call them? A leap year, take a, a year off of college and just, you know, go to work, find myself. So uh, I started working for my dad's company and I was digging ditches, bending pipes, driving the forklift, doing deliveries in the uh, truck. It was an electrical contractor company. So we mostly built like uh, large healthcare or large industrial projects. But that year turned into two, two turned into four. I thought, okay, maybe this is my life's purpose. Maybe I am a chip off the old block after all. Uh, my brother, my uncle, a lot of family worked there. And I was right, but I was also very wrong. My dad was a resourceful guy. He had an extreme work ethic, earned every single step he took on earth. And I think I may have borrowed the resourceful gene from him because that was my main takeaway. I was not going to be a ditch digger. I was not going to be a pipe bender. I was not going to be an electrician. It just was not going to be for me. About that time, good buddy of mine that I grew up with, went to high school with, played football with, he could easily see like how confused, worried, tired I was of the life I was living. You know, you can only wake up at 4 a.m. so many days to go dig a ditch and uh, still be super happy. <laughs> he, uh, he did something for me that I think was maybe just a little bit intrusive, but I'm glad he did it. He literally re-enrolled me for college, got me signed up for classes. I think he might've even picked my major. I'll be honest. The, the, the guy legitimately just kind of took hold of my life, just put me right back into it. And I'll tell you what, it forced me to quit. <laughs> it forced me to do a part-time job. And I mean, the rest of that is just history for me. I, I hit my stride in academics. I found my voice with public speaking events. I learned uh, a niche in financing and investing. I developed a skill of making complex ideas very simple. I learned the strings that made societies and economies run. I was receiving, and in most instances, probably turning away, a lot of job offers from these dream companies. And before I knew it, I was living this life that I never knew was an option for me. Uh, it's been an incredible run. You really have just ended up in a place you could never have imagined and took a journey that you can't just make up. You really took your time to find your way. And it's interesting, especially just where you started like in construction, ending up being working in venture capital. And so I just... I love that because I kind of relate in some ways. We were talking before the recording that I kind of had to jump around, like jumping from job to job, going between three jobs in 2020, ended up having to leave all three, go back to school. And I love just hearing that and now seeing that you are doing quite well. It may have taken you longer, but you ended up in the best place possible and found your passion. And so it kind of leads me. It's like, 
tell us about your current company and what you're doing because you, again, you started in construction and now you're working at a venture capital, in venture capital. Yeah. And I mean, this was, uh, this, this wasn't necessarily a, a marathon type of race. I mean, this was a sprint from picking up the phone one day and my buddy saying, Hey, I'm going to re-enroll you in classes. You should probably consider quitting your job and getting a part-time to walking across the stage at Harvard. I mean, it was, it felt like it was the blink of an eye, but right now, currently, yeah, I am, I am a general partner. I work with Agility Ventures. My time is spent there, mostly strategy sessions. Lately, the discussions revolve around how do you navigate an imminent recession? How do you work with the currency risk? We are international. What do you do about investor concerns? Because you still have to have those conversations every day. And how are you going to continue to bring value to these early stage startups? We focus on angel seed level companies. So historically, those actually thrive through recessions and down periods in the market. My favorite saying here is that hard times give way to innovation. And I think that's true. When we look at recessions of the past, you see where most of the innovation comes about. And I'm not even talking about, you know, hey, 2008, we had a, we had a hard time. I mean, looking way back, look through the 70s, look through the early 80s, look through the 30s. Of course, probably most of all of those are before both of our time. But you can look back historically and you can see, wow, a lot of innovation happened. A lot of crazy things happened that drove the economy, the U.S., to skyrocket. I mean, I love looking at like 1920 through yesterday on like the NASDAQ chart. You know what I mean? And you see just this incredible, it looks like a plane taking off, the, the travel path of a plane. It's unreal. But, you know, because of that, we, we're kind of having to deal with that now and moving forward. Just this morning, the Fed reached out and said 75 basis points up. So interest rates go up just like that, trying to get the economy back under control trying to take a little bit of the coal out of the uh, out of the furnace just to slow us down some. But, you know, I, through this role of general partner, I get to do what I love to do, which is teach. I get to lecture. I get to work with incubators. I get to provide conversation, teaching points during seminars and events. I get to act as a mentor to co-founders and entrepreneurs. And to me, that resonates. I have always said I am a helper. I am a teacher. I'm a conversationalist. I am, I am a lover of relationships. I also do that on the side as a managing director for Spain Hill Capital, which is a company that I formed. And that primarily is learning and vetting and figuring out alternate investment vehicles. In times like this, you know, is the S&P 500 really where we want to have our money? Or are we going to look at different things like art, collectibles, startup companies, bonds, anything that allows for growth and balance? And balance, I think, is key right now. And you will definitely agree with me. You want to create that optimal portfolio. Uh, you want to balance risk. You want to balance reward. Uh, and you want to be able to put that on a sliding scale of sorts and say, okay, this quarter, we're feeling a little bit risky. You know, let's, let's dive in, let's dive into NFTs, you know, let's get wild with it. But I, I do a lot of podcast interviews too, just like we're doing today. The speaking engagements, I do a lot of those. 
and I get to discuss all of my favorite topics. I get to crack a few probably not that funny jokes. I am a master of dad jokes, but none of them ever land. But my, you know, personal finance and investing, my favorite topics, hands down. In fact, my wife and I are beginning to work on a book together. It teaches and explains everything I wish that 16-year-old me knew about finance because it took a little bit later in life before I understood why it might not be the best idea to make all my purchases on a credit card or why it might not be a good idea to buy that brand new truck. I didn't understand that at 18, 19, 20 years old. It, you know, I was uh, uh, an embarrassing age before I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I won't buy a new vehicle anymore. But that's something that I want to teach and I want to share. So uh, my wife, just like me, talks a lot loves to have conversation. So we're going to set it up like an interview. Out of that interview, we're going to take it and hopefully break it down to some of the building blocks of personal finance and try to help kids that are a lot like me. Once you finish writing that book, send it over. Because I'm the same way. One of my favorite books is personal finance. I've read the Dave Ramsey books. I've read Robert Kiyosaki books. I've read almost any personal finance book you name, I've probably read. So keep me posted on that one. And then I do have say, lost my train of thought. I do have to bring up, I did love that you bring up diversifying investment. Are we going to be investing in the S&P 500 over the next year with the recession? Just in our last episode, we had a portfolio manager come on the show telling us about portfolio management, diversification, and really asking and looking at your risk tolerance. It's interesting, and it has to be interesting on your side, talking to investors, helping them understand and showing them where you still bring value. And what are you, if you can tell us, what are you telling investors right now to kind of keep them with you? And how are you kind of helping them look at and diversifying risk and things like that? What are you looking at right now too, I guess? I will, I will say that probably the, the one thing that I always lean on, I said it earlier, historically, Early stage startups, angel, seed, even series A, perform well. They perform just fine. Now, most of those companies, we we do work under the assumption of a, of a J curve, if you will. That J curve dips below, goes negative for a year or so, and then comes up. Usually the more mature companies during a recession struggle because they're, they're trying to go live. They're looking for a merger. They're looking for acquisitions. Interest rates go through the roof. Some of these companies uh, that maybe were sitting on cash reserves may not be sitting on them anymore. Uh, they're looking for more funding later, and maybe the funding has dried up or other VC firms or their appetite's not there for the later stage. That's where I like to jump in and say, hey, guys, look. As investors, as LPs, limited partners, for those who are following along at home, as LPs, you should be excited to invest in early stage startups. These are the companies that come out of recessionary periods and explode onto the scene. So for us, going back to diversity, going back to the things that I want to invest in, I want to look towards, I invest in anything that I see progress or fundamental value in. And that could be anything, real estate. I mentioned art and collectibles. It could be crypto, a little bit tough right now, but it could be crypto. 
It could be NFTs. It could be, you know, securities, public markets, a very popular retail trading platform that came from the Sherwood Forest allows for IPs or IPOs. You, you see IPOs on there now that you can jump on and you can invest in before they go live. That's really interesting. That's, that has not been available to the average Joe retail investor, hardly nowhere in history I can look at. And I also always look at startup companies. And it's not just venture capital startup companies. It's, it's companies that are trying to bootstrap and fundraise on their own. It's, you know, Jackson and Tim's law firm. It's uh, T&J Brewery trying to get off the ground to make the hoppiest of beers. You know, those guys need funding too. And they, you know, they can perform during recessions, but with startups and venture capital. So looking specifically at venture capital, I'm looking within probably four verticals every time. That's enterprise technologies, consumer, healthcare, finance, fintech's a hot one right now, right? Those are really broad categories. They cover a lot of ground, but each of those verticals probably have dozens of different pathways within them. So in that case, I go from four verticals and I break it down into different criterias of companies that I want to invest in. No, thank you for sharing your criteria. And that was what I was kind of going to ask next. But first, I do have to comment that for your crypto comment, let us give a moment of prayer for the crypto investors because they have had a rough year. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say how how far I rode, <laughs> rode that train down before saying, okay, I guess I'm just going to hold the bag for a while. <laughs> There's a lot of people like me. It's not just me, Jackson. Don't judge. I, I cannot lie. I have never been a crypto fan, and I have not liked it from the start. I've never jumped on board. I just, I stick by Warren Buffett that if he, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to invest in it. I, it's a lot like skydiving. It really is. There's been a few times where I'm like, I have no idea what this coin is. I have no idea really the fundamentals of it, but. It's got one of my favorite memes, and that's got to mean something. It, at that point, I put I put myself into uh, the goodwill of the universe in hopes that it may deliver me from losing, you know, five hundred dollars. It has not delivered. I will go ahead and say that never deliver. No, my only thing I can comment about, like Bitcoin, is in a friend of mine in cybersecurity. I can't say too much, but he did. He had to learn the dark web and things like that. And he taught me some of it. And the number one thing used on exchange for the dark web is Bitcoin. So the only place where it's legal t- tender in the most illegal places. And so I'm like, I'm not investing in this. <laughs> so that's interesting, right? So like... With DeFi, with decentral, you know, decentralizing these these different financial tools, okay, there may be some shady stuff around the corner here and there. If you, but Jack, if if you're gonna go and turn over all the rocks, I mean, you're gonna find a few worms. It happens. It totally happens. But you know, whenever I talk about crypto, the things about crypto that excite me aren't uh, necessarily the Bitcoin or the Ethereum. It's not that. It's the blockchain. The blockchain is what gets me excited. Those are the fundamental values that I look for. 
Uh, blockchain is something that you can take and you can put into areas that you, you'd probably be surprised. Like blockchain has a very important role and a very important future in supply chain management. It has an important future in ESG. And for those also trying to figure out what, what are these, uh, what are these words that we're tossing around? ESG is a term used for environmental, social, and corporate governments. So the G is governance. That is, wouldn't you love to know exactly where your soybean came from? Wouldn't you love to know that the company whose phone you use the most is using ethical vendors across the world? There are case studies that go probably about 10, 10, 15 years back, following some very important companies that are probably worth trillions now that may limit it down. But we are looking at how they handled the sustainability and the transparency of their supply chains because there was a lot of unethical things that were uncovered. Blockchain allows that vision. It allows you to jump in and look behind the curtain and see, hey, where did this come from? How did it get here? How many hands did it pass through? And why in the world did it go through child labor? Or why did it go through a country that we are currently at war with? Or why did it go through this particular trade route that doesn't have taxes? So blockchain to me is a fundamental thing that's going to change a lot of industries. Supply chain is just one of them. It sounds like it's really going to impact how people look at companies. I got two things I want to comment. I think that's really going to affect the investment companies that do social investing, which is, for those who don't know, it's like it's a company that manages your investment that will only invest in, if you're, say, vegetarian, they're not going to invest in any meat companies. And so that's what we mean by social investing companies. And so that's really going to impact them and help them become more transparent that to show their investors they're investing in what they say they are. But two, I'm curious, as people kind of become more socially aware of the, the world around them, and you being a VC fund, do you think blockchain is going to affect who you invest in, seeing who they're going through and things like that? Absolutely. The only reason I, I bring up ESG in this is because as an investor, where we are putting capital, where I put my my investors' capital and my own, uh, with that being said, I want to know without a doubt that we are following up as much as possible to see our human rights in place. Business ethics, that's a huge one. Executive compensation is a huge one. You know, we talk a lot about what, you know, a mega billionaire makes that owns a company. Does that person need to be making multi-billion dollars if the majority of their labor force is underpaid? Or if they outsource the majority of their labor force overseas where there might be human rights conditions that are unagreeable or unethical? So yeah, we, we believe that as investors, that absolutely is a responsibility. It's a social responsibility. And I think even more of your investors will love to see that. And honestly, companies will love to see that they're, for example, you have institutional investors. And again, for those who don't know, those are large like corporations, pension funds, banks, insurance companies that are investing into these VC funds. But I know that a lot of them are focusing more and more on social awareness and seeing that 
And if they're investing in your VC and they see that you're investing in social awareness, they can market that and show that how well they're doing and they're really taking the time to invest into a better tomorrow. Absolutely. It's, it is something that you will see. It'll scale across VC, private equity, institutional investors, like you mentioned. It'll eventually scale into retail investors, average Joe or average Jane. They will be starting to look at an ESG score whenever they're investing. And they'll have the opportunity to make that decision for themselves. Am I concerned about returns or am I concerned about betterment? And that will be a that will be a mirror that we all will have to look into together. As the years go on, we will see this is probably going to move to the forefront of what is important. It seems that I have a lot more to learn about blockchain. I've heard the term thrown around, but now I might need to have a full episode dedicated to that. When you want to talk about blockchain, we will schedule time. I have a full episode plus of information on blockchain. It is, let's be honest, Jack, it's going to blow your mind, buddy. It's going to blow your mind. Honestly, so far you've already blown my mind so much, but I want to see how much more you can blow it. So you've told us kind of now that blockchain is going to affect how you socially invest and that will become one of your criteria for your, your fund. Besides just like the ethical stuff, what else is your VC or any VC looking at investment criteria? Sure. I mean, blockchain's not a hard, not a hard criteria for me. It's not something that says uh, yes, no. Do you have it? Which equals yes, no. Do I invest for us? Usually in the VC space, uh, we know that we personally are focused on probably four things. Uh, the first one is the co-founders. Co is a very important word here. Statistically, co-founders are more successful than single founders. I'm always looking for individuals that have that deep understanding of the product or the vertical space. Uh, the reason I know about blockchain is because someone blew my mind on blockchain at some point in time. Some co-founder told me, this is why we're doing this. Someone told me a few years ago, this is why ESG is important. So we look for those individuals that have a deep understanding, people that can blow our mind. We also look at the management team, the people that they put around them. Co-founders are only as successful as those people. These teams are usually pretty fluid. People do come and go. These companies pivot. You know, you and I spoke earlier about how in a in a period like this where so much uncertainty and just crazy curveballs get thrown your way, you'll find you pivot here, pivot there. Your product may change. The value prop may change. That happens to everyone. We all have to navigate this together. And so you'll see where management teams will come and go and change. Different roles will be added or taken away as the value prop is updated. There's a lot of different stages to growth. And we want to make sure that the management team around these co-founders is right, no matter what stage that company's in. Thirdly, we look at large addressable markets. That seems like it's pretty self-explanatory. Ideally, we want to work with founders who are solving big problems for large geographies, large populations. We don't necessarily want to look at someone who's trying to change the, you know, the one town they live in. While that is respectable, naturally, we are wanting to try to bring as much value as we can to as many as we can. And so we look for those large addressable markets. Finally, pathways to profitability. We always want to see a path that leads to positive cash flow. 
most early stage startups, kind of like what we were talking about, you, you, you're not going to operate in the positive. You'll operate with negative cash flow for the first few months or in some cases, the first few years. You have to scale. You have to build product offerings. You will usually expect to see some, some cash burn through that period. But in today's economy, the way that things have, have turned here recently, we're seeing a big push for startups to get to that profitability sooner than later. But above all else, outside of those four things, as venture capitalists, we believe that the companies we choose to invest in are answering big problems and bringing great value to their customers. People value will always lead to company value. It's the idea of the customer-centric environment or ecosystem. Our goal is to help the company become valuable by providing them the capital and mentorship needed to provide value to their customers. So I'll, I'll say the line again because I love this one. People value will always lead to company value. And that's probably the, the root of why I do what I do in venture capital. I am a helper. I'm a lover of people. I want to offer whatever skill set I have because I know that I can bring value and people value will always lead to company value. You're going to dream about that motto tonight. We're going to make shirts. It's going to be a thing, Jack. It's going to be a thing. I'll add it to the website. I'll make it the first product on Niche Finance where we sell that, that quote on a shirt, a hat, and a mug. That's great. I love you it. You got to hit all the basics. I will, uh, I'll send over my best, uh, my best headshots. Please do. I'll frame and put up on the wall. Uh, I love that. But no, and it's interesting to see that. I do want to say, I think it's interesting to see one of the top criteria and the first one you named was the co-founders themselves. Because I can, we always hear these stories of startups getting that VC funding and it seems to be the dream. Like when you have a startup, you want to get that VC funding. So I'm curious, what's the reality for you on the VC side, having startups coming to you all the time? Number one, the reality is you see a lot of really passionate people. Besides that, you see a lot of cool ideas. And, you know, the, the, harsh, the harsh reality is you'll pass on 99% of the companies that you evaluate. Some first town, first time founders are gonna probably have better odds of getting into Harvard or Yale. We try hard, we do, to evaluate fairly, but you can see how many firms using similar investment criteria to what we use could potentially pass on a billion dollar idea because that founder is a 21 year old version of me. Or you. Plenty of potential, but not quite checking enough of the boxes. That's why we encourage founders to find that partner, bootstrap some cash, build an MVP. And if you've never worked in product or design or any, anything like that before, MVP is a minimum viable product. It's that first, that first run, just getting it out there. But try to grow. Try to grow alone. Try doing it yourself. Sell yourself to your friends, sell yourself to family, to other angel investors. If you 
can't get over that awkwardness of selling your dream, it is a long shot that any VC will buy into it. So that's usually the feedback that is having to be passed because 99%, that's a tough rejection rate. I wish it was a 99% acceptance rate because I would love to see that many companies getting an opportunity to try. And in, in all honesty, man, there in this economy, it, it may become that. It may become, okay, everyone gets a little. Let's just see where this goes. How many can we help? What innovation is going to come out of this tough time? And that's an insane rejection rate, 99%. Yeah. Yeah, the 1%. And most most VC firms, that's that's what they look for, the top 1%. And if this were a race, Jack, I know you can see me. I know nobody else can see me, but you can see me. Buddy, I'm not I'm not in the top 1% of a race. <laughs> I'm I might not be in the top 98%. Like I may be like pulling up the back. That's tough. That is tough and it's tough to hear because these companies, these co-founders Imagine passionately pitching your idea and your dream and your value to someone and being told no. But a lot of these companies, they're not just coming to me. They're coming to me, probably 40, 50 other people at any given time. Imagine 40 or 50 no's before someone says, okay, I I can do that. Uh, That's why relationships are very important in venture capital. You're going to be with them for the long haul. You you were there, you know, you were their first person that said yes. That's incredible. You probably remember your first relationship you have where you were like, I love this person, you know? Of course, you're young, but that's how VC goes. You get your first startup and they say, I, I love you. Thank you. And you end up going through a lot together. Um, relationships are very important. No, and they are. They're the number one thing when it comes to the investing world is relationships. I told you a little bit about uh, my current company. It's legitimately all built on relationships. It's not built on a product, only built on the relationships I have with the people I work with. And so, and the reality is also that I'm not sure how large your VC is or how much funds you have, but don't like a majority of your businesses you invest in end up not coming through but only then like one or 2% of those you invest in end up actually making you a profit. Oh yeah. Uh, That's, that is, that is definitely reality. Not every investment is 150 X return. You know, you, let's say you put 10, 10 companies out there with capital. It is not unrealistic that eight or nine of them go, go flat. That's, that does happen. Failure happens. That's why whenever we're looking at co-founders, it's hard to go with a first-time founder. The odds are against them. We want them to be successful, but if we have to tell you no this round, take that idea, bootstrap it, try, try hard. Let's see you. Even if you fail, you've learned something. Even co-founders that may have failed originally are more likely to get through to VCs the second time around which I know we're going to talk about it because we, we spoke about this earlier and you, you know that I am passionate on this. Fail, fail and fail often. That's, uh, you know, right, right next to the uh, people value creates company value. Jack, just below that, leave space. 
because the next motto is fail and fail often. Failure is normal. It should be encouraged. We all fail. Jack, I probably failed at something today. I know that's hard to believe, but I probably failed at something today. You probably did too. Uh, in fact, I, I watched you try to get your, your headphones to work for at least 10 minutes. I know you failed today. Let's normalize that. It's okay. I, I have a guy that I work with. I, I love him to death. And this is something that he and I agree on. Failure is normal. And we should be okay with that. Uh, whenever I was younger, again, growing up in God's country of Las Casas, Tennessee, I had a mentor that used to tell me, it doesn't matter how many times you fall, it's how many times you get back up. And wow, that is, I'm living proof of that. And I'm proud of it. I'm doing things that I love with people that I love. And I did it because many, many times I have picked myself up from failure and decided to walk forward. I wouldn't be here if I didn't step outside of my comfort zone, fail, probably lose a little bit of money here and there, and then learn some lessons from that. My goal, what I want to do, uh, and I'm, I'm positive as a life purpose, it's sharing those lessons with others. It's sharing those lessons with co-founders. It's sharing those lessons with 16-year-old me. It's sharing lessons with the, the family office that wants to jump into a venture capital for the first time. It's teaching investors that it's okay to lose a little bit here and there because we're learning from this right now. We're going we're gonna to get back on this horse and we're going to try it again and we're going to do better. It is hard to keep that poker face in, a, in an industry that is surrounded by failure. Luckily, I am comfortable with failure because I know Jack, you could probably say it with me. It's okay to fail and fail often. You can make up for this. You can come back. That's just it. That's what it all comes down to. What we're doing now, my new company, what you're doing with your new company, we're going to fail often in them. And we're going to fail spectacularly. And we're going to have to just get back up. We messed up. We failed this client. And they probably aren't going to come back and hire us. But we learned a lot from that client we failed. And we just got to go to the next one and be making sure we're not making that same mistake. But that's the beauty of life is it you just always keep learning. You know, that might not be the motto we put on the shirt after all, but I, I love it. And I, I'm, I'm with you on that. There's going to be a lot of times where, you know, an investor says, no, I'm not interested. Uh, whenever you work in sales, how many no's do you go through before you get a yes? Probably a few. As a former telemarketer, I can say a lot. I think I hung up on you one time. I, I recognize oh, this. Oh, you did. I'm sorry. <laughs> I called you. Tim, um, I know we're kind of running towards that time, but I do got a few more questions. I do have a few more questions for you. So let's just ask a simple question. Who all can invest into a venture capital? Because people are always hearing about it, and we always hear we can invest in stocks, but really, who can invest into venture capital? That's actually a good question because it's it's one that I get often whenever I'm talking with people who aren't familiar with it. Uh, is this something I can do? Uh, usually, usually investments come from either high net worth individuals, uh, investment banks, or other types of financial institutions. Uh, you mentioned some of those earlier tonight, but accredited investors is the key word here. 
And there are two criteria that the SEC lays out that lets us know what an accredited investor is. Criteria one is a financial criteria. And that means your net worth is greater than a million dollars if you exclude your primary residence. Now, I, again, you can't see, but there's there's finger air quotes around primary. Um, imagine if you're a real estate investor, your primary residence is taken out, but you have 10 other residences. Those can be included. If you have income over $200,000 if you're single or $300,000 if you have uh, joint taxes. And if you had that for the prior two years and there's pretty good evidence that it will continue, then you, what was the Jeff Foxworthy? You might be an accredited investor. Man, I might be aging myself with that. Ah, you know what? That's all right. I'll stand by it. But the other criteria is a professional one, which is, which is great because a lot of people, this is where they fit in. Investment professionals. Jack, you, you are one of these. Either you have a Series 7, a Series 65, or a Series 82. Now, people listening are like, this sounds kind of like BMWs. I have a 3 Series. What Do I also get to invest? You do not. Series 7, 65, and 82 are licenses. Those are individuals that are licensed to sell securities, be advisors for investment portfolios, or they are representatives that can sell private securities. Also, another professional criteria would be directors, executive officers, general partners of the company that's selling those shares. Finally, you got family offices and family clients, and you're wondering what that might be. A family office is an office that is set up for a high net worth family to run business on their behalf. Usually that's investments private equity, some type of hedging. So those are those are the two main criterias, financial, professional. But you got to be an accredited investor in order to ride this train. Well, that is a sad reality. You have to be one of those high net worth people to invest in funds like yours, Tim. To those listening, you still have other viable options thanks to, I believe, the 2000 Job Act. Do consider crowdfunding in equity investments. You are allowed to do those to, to a certain amount, but those are great options. Just be prepared. They are highly risky, and not every crowdfunding website will run due diligence on those investments. And let it be said, nothing on this show is investment advice, and I am not giving investment advice. Got to do that for the legal side. That's a good, uh, that's a good disclaimer to throw out there. I concur. Ditto. Now that we kind of know more about what your company does, we got to know who gets to invest in it. What is something people really don't know about your company? I guess you kind of told us a little bit. People don't know that so many get rejected. And the cohort truth is that you have better odds of getting into Harvard. Yeah. Yeah. In all honesty, if I've made it through that, the, I probably should not be trying to launch a company. You know, my I've already uh, worn out all of my good luck. Now, and one of my other favorite questions besides just learning your journey of how you got here is, what is something I haven't asked you that you would love to share? Something that you haven't asked me, and, and you probably should have. Uh, by this point, you definitely should have. Tim, Tim, why not marketing? Tim, why not radio? You know, 
why not uh why not put those beautiful beautiful gold pipes to work i mean I do a lot of speaking events. This is true. I do a lot of podcasts. I get to spend a lot of time. I talk about the things I love uh, because I'm passionate about it. And, you know, you'll, you'll hear me on all kinds of different events. I love teaching. I love doing seminars. I love doing speaking series. The crazy part is, is I usually do it. We'll say it's free, but it's goodwill. You know, I do it as goodwill because I am sincerely passionate about how do we take individuals and improve their knowledge of personal finance or accounting or investment theories or taxes even? I love sharing things that I've learned along the way. Partly why, why I'm writing a book, partly why I speak for free, partly why you and I get along so much. We're both passionate people about this. So uh, yeah, I'm surprised you haven't asked me, Tim, why do you not have your own podcast or radio show? I'm just too busy, Jack. I'm, I'm going to rely on you to be my conduit to the people. Honestly, I'm happy to do it. And honestly, I'm going to have to have you back on the show for a number of reasons. Let's, uh, let's, let's do a uh, Tim and Jack journey to the dark web. Oh, that, <laughs> that I could do. I, my, when my friend, I'll comment this and I don't know if I should be sharing this, but Background, I went to a Baptist university. I was in, lived in the dorms my freshman year. And just before I came up, that cybersecurity brain kind of showed me the dark web a little bit. And I ended up exploring it in my dorm at a Baptist university. And I did not realize, I was not looking up anything. I was on like those um, chat rooms, those Wikipedia pages of like, People just sharing random stuff. However, people walked in and saw it and it was like, what do you want? And I told them and word quickly spread around my campus that I was the dark web guy. And I was like, this can only go so poorly for me. It, it, and, it and didn't it? It did. Um, what's crazy is that university has invested over $5 million in, in information security and, and firewalls uh, because of the, the dubious uh, Jack the Ripper who uh, taunted the campus with his, with his dark web secrets. Shame on you. Shame. Uh, okay. Let's make, uh, let's make uh, Jack, Jack the Dark Reb I can't, it's a tongue twister. Jack the Dark Web Ripper t-shirts. It's perfect. I'm telling you, man, marketing. Listen, I gotta come to you for my marketing for my podcast, dude. Exactly. I'll give you, I'll give you jingles. I'll give you all kinds of good stuff. Promise. Tim, we have to wrap up, but I have loved having you on the show. Honestly, I'm already excited to have you back on the show again. Jack, I appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate you getting a, uh, getting to uh enjoy this time i know i did so uh yeah absolutely in the future let's spend more time together let's talk through it there's plenty of uh plenty of things out there that the average listener may not know i think we could probably do a good job breaking those down